0: Young people that are going to Children's Church on downstairs, Uh, pay close attention please and we will be checking your notes, children, after uh, first hour. (laughs) Um, Those who remain up here, we're going to turn in our Bibles today. We're going to have a good time studying divine institution number three, parents and their children. We're going to look at what the Bible says in terms of wisdom for Mothers and fathers. Wisdom, actually for fathers and sons, for both the parents and the children. And um, one of my sons said, Dad, I want to stay upstairs first hour. I want to hear, you know, the Bible time up here. And I said, well, this would be a good time to do it since the topic is fathers and sons and mothers, fathers and mothers and their children in uh, Proverbs 3. We're studying the government, we're God in government where we're talking about I think one of the great areas that, that needs improvement in our civilization and uh, explains really a lot of what's wrong, where did we go wrong? We stopped training children to serve God with their choices. We said, God is irrelevant to your day-by-day choices. Deuteronomy 6.5 doesn't apply. We're not going to teach these things to our children so that they can teach their children. And, and we said, education is what children need. And they do, but they need an education that edifies and teaches them to serve God. Remember, in the the kind of workup on the categories, we're trying to say that you have all these derivative institutions of authority, delegated authority from God. All authority comes from God. He's the sovereign, and he's delegated down these structures, and we, in worship of God, honor them. We honor the structures that he's created. We honor the delegated authorities. And this is really important because every one of these is the exercise of volition. Yes or no. It's a decision. It's a binary kind of yes or no. And, you you, you know, I say it's binary. I mean, it's yes or no. It's one or the other. It's digital. It's zero or one with the decision. Isn't that an interesting thing about decision making? That Sometimes we don't want to uh, make a call. We don't want to decide. We kind of want to let it slide. Got a lot of decisions served up to you. And if you have a bunch and you're not well-rested, You could say, I don't know, I'll uh, think about that tomorrow. And we push the decision off. That's a decision itself, right? Forestalling. This is the great delegation, and it's one of the great things about being alive. The ability to make choices. And I'm trying to make the case, based on Proverbs and uh, the rest of the Scriptures, that God's gift to you of what some have called free will, what others have called volition, the capacity to make choices. This is one of the great blessings of life. But it has a purpose, and the purpose, it it is the way that you are capable of bringing glory to God. You, by your choice, honor God as a free agent made capable of making decisions. There's nothing like this in all of creation except you and God. That's one, DI1 or Divine Institution 1 is that capacity to choose. And in all of these, there are decisions to be made. You have to choose. And so, remember in the marriage study, we said... Paul's marital counseling in Ephesians 5 begins in Ephesians 5.18. Do not be drunk with wine. That's good advice in marriage. Do not be drunk with wine, but rather instead be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. Have God so working in you that His Word is richly dwelling within you so that you are characterized by the things of God and influenced by the Spirit of God with that Word. That's the filling ministry of the Spirit in this age in which we live. And we said that's the beginning of the discussion that goes forward to wives submit to your husbands in five twenty two. The first command, the big command, is be filled by the Spirit, and then the how you talk to God, how you talk to one another, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord. These things, submitting one to another, they're the result of the filling of the Spirit. That's your spiritual life. So Paul is prescribing Christian marriage in Ephesians five twenty two through thirty three, and it's very interesting that what he does is present responsibilities to our volition. He says, these are your responsibilities. He doesn't say, uh, let's work on the dynamic, let's work on the impossible dynamic of of how you relate to one another Uh, at, at, at one time. He says, wives, you have responsibilities. And it has to do with with being uh, the picture of the church with our Savior, with Christ. Husbands, you have responsibilities, and it deals with being Christ in the illustration. And those are volitional. Wives, you can submit to your husbands. Husbands, you can choose. You are required to choose to self-sacrificially love your wives. You see how this works? It's simple. I know it's a very simple observation, but it's everything. Government is what I choose what I choose with what's been entrusted to me. And enlightened government is I start with God and what he said, and I use that in my determining back to him. How can I use this decision to honor him? So decisions become worship. And the hard thing, well, I'm not sure what to choose. I don't know what to do when you have a hard decision to make. Ask God the worship question, which decision worships you best? Which brings honor, glory, and praise to you the most? And that's a much better paradigm than throwing fleeces. Much better paradigm than uh, liver quivering. As though you are some sort of spiritual magic eight ball, shake yourself up, and then wait and see what you feel like the answer is. That mystical intuition stuff that the Bible doesn't really prescribe. Now I know you've got some examples in the Old Testament of, of doing a, a testing God, Abraham's servant. If she's, if she's the one, then she'll do these things. I know we have examples of this, but... It doesn't seem to be the way, especially in the New Testament, decisions are made. We have the Spirit of God working in us, and we have been given wisdom, and we're supposed to have as our ambition to be pleasing to Him. So I'm I'm proposing that this whole decision-making thing is best done according to wisdom, according to what God's Word has said, and I'm personally connecting to God. Next hour, we're going to see the motivations for our decisions. In our study of the riches of divine grace, there are two competing motivations, or, or I guess coordinating motivations that come together to uh, to show you a, a robust personal walk with god and and one reason we do what god said is because we trust him and it's faith and the other reason we do what god said is because we what why do we do what god said we trust him by faith abraham but why else do we do what he said he's your dad yeah what's that because you love him. And these two things are different things. Trusting him and loving him are not exactly the same. You can see how they're related. And that's a robust relationship with God. And I'm excited about second hour. But anyway, all these, all these structures are decision-making structures because that's how authority works. The authority means the right, the capacity, the prerogative to make the decision. And that starts with your capacity to decide in the first place, as we said, DI1 is you and God. And so we're looking at parents and children, and I think it's very powerful to recognize that children have volition, and that that's what you're training, that's what we're trying to, to bring about, is that they learn to use their decision-making to please God. And everything that you know about raising children fits into this. Like, you have to be a good example for your kids. Why? So that they have ingrained in them the sense of what the right decision would be because you've kind of walked with them and they've seen that example. And worldview is more, as they say, caught than taught, for example, right? So th- this kind of, of, of idea. All right. So we've looked in Proverbs. We want to turn to Proverbs uh, 1. We've looked at some of the statements. I love the book of Proverbs. Uh, and all of the scriptures, but Proverbs is fun because of how it is written, what it is. And we've seen in some detail the last couple of weeks how Proverbs one eight establishes an ethic for children that might surprise us. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. Before we ever tell them what we're going to tell them, we tell them to take what we're going to tell them to heart and value it. We provide a container for our instruction, and that container is an obligation that you need to take these things and value them. We're teaching children in Proverbs 1.8 to value the instruction that we're giving them. The instruction begins with, you need to value this. That is an impulse that we may, in our humility, may not quite think that we should do. I have something to teach you and you need to get it because it's good for you. That's the idea of training a child's volition. And the child is going to choose every step either to walk with you or not. Put their hand in your hand and walk along with you or say no. And it's, it's the most frustrating thing in the world when you have the infinite wealth of God's word and you want to deposit that here I have what fills the God-shaped hole that we all were born with, and let's do that. And they say, no, something else. No, I don't want that. I want something else. And it's uh, very common, but that's what's happening, is that volition is failing. And you and I are not responsible, ultimately, for another person making the wrong choice. But we, as parents with children, are absolutely setting conditions to give them the best opportunity possible to make the right choices. So that's kind of the idea, don't, and we've seen it again in Ephesians chapter six, verse four, that you have to set conditions, don't provoke them to anger. But here's the positive: but you rear them, or train them, or raise them up in the instruction and or the training, the the discipline and the correction of the Lord, as we've seen the paideia, the child training, and the nouthesia, the 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 correction of the Lord. And so, um, so in Proverbs one eight, we are told by Solomon's example, that you teach the child first that what you're about to hear is valuable, so you need to really pay attention. That sets conditions right there for learning. And it's, it also calibrates a child's scale of values that what mom and dad have to say is valuable. And how does Solomon say it's valuable? Indeed, these that teaching, the teaching that we're going to give you mom and dad, there are graceful wreaths about your head and ornaments about your neck. And my son, if sinners entice you to not consent, that's a volitional Uh, challenge in verse 10 you have the choice to make and you have peers that are going to tell you make this other choice but we got in here first and we told you you make a different choice and so now you know there's mom and dad and the sinners that entice you and you pick in that sense it's a personal connection and that's how we're made but notice it's training the child's volition in proverbs 1 8 and then and 10 and then we saw last time the mom and dad with the absurd example, don't become a bandit and set a trap for people and murder them for their money if, if you have buddies that tell you to do that. And it's absurd because it's Solomon training the crown princes. And of course, the first thing you would say is, okay, absolutely, whatever you do, don't become a murderer thief. Don't do that. I've seen it happen. I've seen exactly that thing happen not here at Preston City Bible Church, but in a Christian youth group, the leader of the Christian youth group, I've seen it, got into a bad habit of sin and went unconfessed and developed in this whole problem of theft. He got, got into a sort of a benign theft cycle. It wasn't benign, but it seemed like not a big deal. I mean, the credit card company will you know, cover the insurance if it's still someone's credit card. But he got into this pattern and it became easier and easier to do worse and worse. He kept not getting caught and he never, never dealt with it. He never came to himself. He never broke the cycle and confessed his sin and got back into fellowship and having God's word in common with God and loving God. He never went back and he got into this bad cycle over a course of several weeks and months and it issued forth in death by the state through lethal injection Because it ultimately eventuated in a murder. Because he spiraled down and further and further and further. And these are his words: This child that died, as a you know early twenty-something, died saying, "I started down a wrong path and it got worse." And it's just a cautionary tale to everyone that you have to walk with the Lord, because you can. Now that's Proverbs one: Don't go kill people and take their stuff. But in a way, it's also an absurd example because it shows you the power of peer pressure. And what is the other thing that you don't want to do because someone entices you? Sinners entice you; don't consent. So the so the, the example of the undesirable outcome of the murderer in Proverbs one. Well, let's do something fun in Proverbs three twelve. You have this for whom he loves. Whom he loves. This gets into the uh, Ephesians six four correction stuff. New thesia, which is hidden in your English translations. They don't say correction, they say instruction. But the word means correcting. It means you made a wrong choice and we're going to address that and get it back to right. Necessary correction. New is correction. For whom he loves, in Proverbs 3.12, the Lord chastens or disciplines. So the way this works, it goes for um, the person, direct object, whom, whosoever, he loves. And this is ahav, the key word, like the, the stock word in Hebrew for love. It's the first use. Its first use is in Genesis 22, when God tells Abraham, take your son, your only begotten son, whom you ahav, whom you love. That's the first time this word love occurs. And then it, then it specifies who the subject of that verb is, the Lord, whom the Lord loves. And then you have the next clause, he chastens. He corrects he reproves. And so I've translated chastens or disciplines. This is discipline doesn't always have a negative connotation. It doesn't always mean a negative thing. Discipline, you know, um, one writer says discipline equals freedom, right? Discipline is, is a good thing. Self discipline, but there's a negative side to it where I don't do the easy thing. I do the hard thing. And, um, but this is, this is the word, the idea, not of just, um, of making a harder choice. This is more seen as a correction for being off course. For whom he loves, and I've, I've broken the, the, the line here because of this little uh, Masoretic suggestion, this little Athanach thing, which I think it's where it does probably break. Whom he lords, he disciplines. Whom he loves, he disciplines. And like a father, Kaav, like a father, an Av, a father, um, the son he takes pleasure in. What I love about Proverbs is when they invert the order, and you can see that structure like right in front of your eyes. The first line, whom he loves, that's talking about God's love, but it's talking about the person, the person that is the object of God's love. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And uh, Jesus loved me, and he gave himself for me. Those twin verses talk about the father's love and the son's love uh, that motivated the work of the cross. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. And if you have Christ, then you have the greatest and most marvelous motivation of love from the Father because you have the Son. And that love of the Father toward His Son is now all blasted right at you because you're in Christ. And I know He loves the world and He sent His Son, but you now have Christ and the intra, inside the Trinitarian love that's been happening from eternity past is now blasted right at you. From the Father to the Son. It's amazing to contemplate. When we say God loves you, we're understating the case a little bit, aren't we? But he does. And I'm taking it in a special sense, you who are believers in Christ. But this is what God does for the one he loves. He brings necessary correction. And and he's a father. Like a father, the son he takes pleasure in. Hebrews uh, chapter 12 makes a big deal about this, quotes it, emphasizes it. Reminds us that if we have divine discipline, that's telling you, you have a father. That's the father's hand. And sometimes it's in a way you don't want to, I don't want to feel his hand that way. Better than having no father. Infinitely better than having no father. But this is the principle. The principle is stated in Proverbs 3.12. Whom the Lord loves, he corrects, he chastens. And like a father, a son, he takes pleasure in. This This is the best news. And so what's the the guidance that we have based on that? Well, he says in the prior verse, my son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. Don't take the correction and harden your heart and double down on your foolishness and go sideways. Open up and receive and break yourself and let humility happen. Let the arrogance go. Let go of your claim to being right against God Who's correcting you, right? Don't harden that heart. Say yes to God. That's the idea. Don't reprove or don't loathe or reject the discipline of the Lord, or loathe His loathe His reproof. For whom whom He loves, the Lord He chastens and disciplines, and like a father a son, He takes pleasure in. This is this is the relationship. And um, that principle again shows up in Hebrews chapter eleven or chapter twelve to our great uh, our great to great effect because He goes further and to the kind of correction we get from God. There's a text variant there, and it's an interesting thing, but this is just the Masoretic text. If we flip forward a little bit to Proverbs 6, this is kind of what you get when you look up the word Father in Proverbs, which is, if you've read the Proverbs a lot, that's a really handy thing to do. If you look up the word Father in Proverbs, we get kind of a full-orbed picture of the wisdom that undergirds the instruction in Ephesians 6.4, to, to uh, rear your children in the um, in the child training, in the training and the uh, correction of the Lord. Proverbs six twenty through 23. My son, observe the commandment of your father. Do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. I have them in English here. Bind them continually on your heart and tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they'll guide you. When you sleep, they'll watch over you. When you awake, they'll talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. This is the New American Standard Translation. You might not be surprised. If we're going to dive down and look at how it works in its poetic parallelism because it's fun to do that in this one and it's helpful and I think it's very insightful. But just on the surface, just kind of reading through what's the, what's the ethic parents are being taught here? What, what, what's the thing that's the first thing before you even tell them what the instruction is? You're telling them to value that instruction. We are establishing in the hearts of children, a scale of values of and values is a political term. That means whatever the politician, whatever you want, you want it to mean. So you like this politician. I mean, what do they actually hold as important? What is in their scale of values? And we said, money is a, is a fairly basic motivator fairly low level motivation for why people do the things they do, right? And uh, better than money is feeling good about what you're doing. I have a good feeling when I I do something. I feel like I'm sort of validated or affirmed and making a good choice. It feels good to help those in need or something. Well, that's better than just the base desire for self-accumulation, but we still haven't arrived at God's work in your life. This is just works of the flesh, self-satisfaction. just just pleasing myself, whether accruing money or I'm a better person. I I please myself by feeling good about doing good for people. Both of those are just fleshly motives. They really are. We need to go after God. I love Him. I serve Him. I love Him. I I, I trust in Him. I'm walking with Him. What does He want? My life has its value in Him. That's that living beyond the sun. So what, what happens is um, mom and dad spend a lot of time in Proverbs six twenty through 23 telling them the value of their instruction, the value of it. How can you and I communicate the value of the instruction? Well, we can prioritize. We can set, set uh, conditions where this is what's happening and we're using this time this way. Um, economics. Thomas Sowell says economics is the let me paraphrase. I can't really quote him, but he says it's the trade-off between multiple um, uh, scarce resources that have multiple alternative uses. It's the decisions you make when those with those scarce resources. The most scarce of all. I just came from the funeral of my brother-in-law's father, and this man, my brother-in-law, Todd Outwood, is is uh, is the brother I never had. I met him when I was 11, and we've been friends since. And um, and I was very close to Gary Atwood, who passed away last week and was able to go to his funeral while I was down in Texas. And, um, you know, I'm always reminded how short things really are. And you think of the get-togethers and the family arrangement, and this is how it is. No, this is how it is in this fleeting moment. Enjoy it. Take a snapshot. It's going. Right? And these things that are always the way. It's not always the way. It's going away. And that's how life is. And, um, it's just short and the most, the scarcest resource is time, it really is. It's much much more fleeting than money, and, but we'll trade time for money and not think that through, right? Um, I, I, I can make everyone in here a billionaire. One of you knows very well I can do this. How much would you give me, for those of you who are right-handed, how much could I buy your right arm for? I'll buy it, I'll give you full market price, What do you say? Where does the bidding start for your right arm? Somebody needs it. You can give it. You know, you can sell it. Well, uh, if you've got a number that approaches a billion dollars or less or even more, you're very different from me the way you think about life. Is it a billion dollars that I could pay you off to get your arm? Well, someone could use their right arm if I paid them. Really? I think we are billionaires in terms of valuation with just the functions of our bodies, right? That's the way I think about it. I think that you're fearfully and wonderfully made. Your body's a magnificent thing, the most valuable thing you own, and it's priceless. There's no value you could place on the function of your physical body because it's just, it's how you are. It's how, it's so much a part of life. And it doesn't mean that someone who's lost their arm is, you know, they don't have any value of life. It means that it's very hard and and they're bereft, as you can imagine. All right. Establishing a scale of values For children, for the teaching of their parents, means setting conditions. And you have to say the time. I'm going to use this time. But we could do something else with the time. I know. Let's list the things we could do with the time that are all less valuable than what we're going to do right now. We're going to do this. Perhaps one one method is before we eat dinner, we open the Word. Which is more important, to eat God's Word or to eat food that gives you nourishment and this sort of thing. That's a theory. It's an interesting theory. It works for adults. Right. You know, you, but, you, but the idea of setting conditions, what's what's important and what are we going to do with our time? And um, and this is the the idea that falls out of training the children to value the instruction itself. It's almost like if um, it's a teaching method, but if you open a thought with a question, like, um, like, what does God want for us? You open a teaching event with a question. What happens is somebody that's listening to that question and thinking it through, that's actually responding, which is, that's its own big lift to get someone to actually think with you. But what does God want for you? It opens a, a mental process in that person. They start actively trying to answer that question. Hmm. Um, and a lot of times young, young people say, I don't really know. I don't know what he wants for me for sure. And, and so you, you know, you start walking through what God has said he wants for them and what he commands. And then you go, Oh yeah, okay. I know. But you open that question and what that kind of does the, my, my, the way I understand the way our minds to work is it kind of opens up a file folder. The file folder has a label at the top. What does God want for me? And right now it's empty and I'm trying to put stuff in it and I don't know what the answer is. And I, but, but we've initialized the discussion. We've opened the topic. That's what one teaching method is. I, I use it all the time. What, is God, what does God want for you? So now they've got the file folder in their brain. Pardon the crude illustration. Your brain doesn't really have a file folder in it. But, but take me literally in terms of what I intend. <laughs> there is now the topic that surfaced, and they're asking, and you're going to then instruct and fill it I'm going to put something in that file folder, right? And, and perhaps that starts a, a lifetime file. What does God say that he wants for me? He wants me to walk by the Spirit. He wants me to love one another as Christ has loved me. He wants me to, um, to uh, not forsake the assembling of ourselves as the ethos of some in uh, Hebrews 10. He wants me to do the things that he's, he's commanded me, and so I begin a, begin a lifetime of figuring out what that is, and then I can trust him and love him through what he said. And um, so this is, this is the, the establishment of a scale of values in Proverbs 6, 20 through 23. And he says, observe, and it begins with the imperative, the command, observe, my son, the mitzvah of Avika, the commandment of your father. The mitzvah. Ever hear bar mitzvah? Bar is Aramaic for son. Mitzvah is Hebrew and Aramaic for commandment. So what you're saying when, you, when a boy at 13 or whatever goes through a bar mitzvah, he becomes a son of the commandment. He becomes under his own responsibility before God to keep God's commandments. That's what the idea of a bar mitzvah is. This is the word mitzvah. It's very common. The Ten Commandments. The commandment, singular, in this case, of your father. And... Since God has created marriage as Divine Institution 2, and that is used forth in Divine Institution 3, parents and children, we have mother as well, as you see. Now, all the commands from father don't always include mother, but there are, it's always implied, and here it's stated. Do not neglect, forsake, leave, like, a, like, like to leave a field that needs to be cultivated, leave it uncultivated. That's the imagery and some of the uses of this word for neglect. I think neglect is a great word. Forsake can be a very vicious word. Forsake can mean to leave it as though it's dead and I just turn my back and walk hard away from it. The other list, forsake. But, but this, is, this is just neglect. It can mean to just not quite do the thing that you should have done by um, carelessness or laziness, a little folding of the hands, a little... Closing the eyes and your poverty comes on you like a, like a thief in the night kind of thing. So I like the word neglect for this. And the word Torah, do not neglect the Torah, T-O-R-A-H, shows up all over Proverbs. It always means instruction. It never means the Mosaic Law. Although we call the Mosaic Law the Torah as a summary because it is, in both cases, mom's instruction and the Mosaic Law, or the, the, the five books of Moses, are the instruction of God. The instruction that's what Torah means, instruction, from the word Yara to instruct. It's a verb that has a nominal form in this Torah. Do not neglect the Torah of Emma. Emma, the Hebrew word for mother. Av, father. Emma, mother. Isn't that neat? Observe the commandment of your father and do not neglect the instruction of your mother. It's pretty straightforward where the commands are and how the structure is in Proverbs 6 and verse 20. Observe and do not neglect. Notice that one way to train children is to tell them a positive command. Pay attention. Another way to train them that, goes, that reinforces it is the negative version of the same command. And they're the same command. Don't neglect. Look at it. Don't look away from it. Maybe we need repetition. <laughs> Since so much of God's word says it twice, I don't think it's an accident that the God of creation of the universe, who holds it all together and, and establishes such magnificent order than what seems to be chaos, the God that sustains reality, that He has so designed history that the art form of Hebrew poetry would constantly be repeating itself, that the nature. Of the Hebrew poetry is to say the same thing twice. Hint, hint, we need repetition. In verse 21, bind them on your heart continually, tie them around your neck. I hope you are seeing Hebrew poetry. He gives you two commands. What are they? Bind and tie. Well that's just saying the same thing twice. It is, but they're two different words. That's why it's art. We use different words. This is why the, the um, King James translators had as one of their priorities to make it more attractive to the readers than the Bishop's Bible and other Bibles that were, um, that were already in English in England but being rejected by the people. They wanted to, to make it more poetic, so they would take in the New Testament a passage that would have the same Greek word so that you knew what the topic was, and then they would change the word and give synonyms of that word all through the passage. That's one of the stated objectives of the King James Bible, which will make it pretty sounding prettier, but obscure the, the theme that's being developed around that word. And, and it's very, you know, and that's a, to me, that's a very controversial decision they made uh, to, to make it pretty at the expense of clarity, <laughs> to doctrinal precision. But I digress. Anyway, we, we, we have two different words for tying something. What does this mean? Bind it on your heart. Well, I'm not a particularly poetic person, I don't want to think in terms of poetic imagery, so I'm just going to skip this one. Now, don't bind them on your heart continually means that you not only value this and set aside time to to take this in, but you hang on to it. You tie it to your heart, as it were, so you reinforce it so you can't forget it. What are your methods of reinforcing information you need to hang on to? What are your methods? Repetition. Repetition. One way you can repeat is you can put a post-it on your refrigerator, right? Well, one of our missionaries uh, was at this conference. He spoke three times. Jim Myers gave some, uh, some wonderful messages from the Word as the keynote speaker at night from this conference. And they, they do a sticker, uh, I shouldn't say a magnet for their fridge. And the idea with their ministry and the picture and everything, the idea is that every time you open the fridge, you say a little prayer for Ukraine and the gospel of that effort. How do you bind things on your heart? You memorize scripture is one way. One way is you take notes. Learning theory is a mess because it's a subset of psychology. So, psychological, sociological, these kinds of things are uh, interesting. But they get presented from clinical studies, they'll say, they get presented as dogmatic conclusions that are just as certain as, like, the law of gravitation or something in science and physics and hard science, and it doesn't work that way. But they are trying to approximate the same kind of hard knowledge about the inner workings of a person, you know, as as we know about physical uh, phenomena. And as a hard science background guy, I kind of, like, don't really like soft sciences that much because that, that effort, which is kind of... And, and, but here's the thing, we're treating the soft science people as though they're just as authoritative as the, as the physics people. That's probably a stupid thing to do. Anyway, in, in learning theory, uh, one of the iterations of this, types of knowledge and types of learning, is that you've got tactile and, and visual and auditory learners. I think there's something to that. I, think you, the, the, I wouldn't say put yourself in a box. I can't listen to the word anymore because I'm a visual learner. Don't do that. But some of you, it hits different if you read it as opposed to if you hear it. And some of you do a much better job hearing it and seeing it if you write it as you're going, take notes. I've always been the kind of person that if I hear it and can write as I hear, I can remember it. And I don't even recourse to my notes. I just know it because it was I, I actively engage the material as it was being delivered. I will re- go back to my notes, but it's, it's, it's not a major uh, task for me to go be read, able to read my notes. This is why it's not such a tragedy that my notes are illegible. But, but you have these different methods of learning in the tactile thing when you're getting a lecture or something. It's to take notes or try to diagram the thought or something to engage with the materials being presented. Now, that's not doodle to distract yourself from what's being taught, but to engage the material. And so I, I think there's great value in recognizing there are different ways that you can get information going. You can read your Bible with your eyes. You can read it out loud so you hear it with your voice. Your ears are hearing it as you read with your eyes. You can throw it in, um, like you know, I've got uh, the Audible app on my phone and I've got my Old Testament and New Testament audio Bible and I can I can plug that in on a, on a car trip and for a certain amount of time I can listen to that or any other reading content before I have to stop and um, wake back up because my brain just struggles with that. But but I'm just saying like there are all kinds of ways to prioritize and get after God's word. And verse 21 is a is a is a watershed that you become responsible to hang on to the training. You have this deposit. You have this treasure and you need to manage it. I think my, um, I'm, I'm going to run a real hazard politically here. When I say, I think my favorite of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia is the Silver Chair. Some of you who are, have other books as your favorite might cast shade on me for thinking that I just—I think the Silver Chair has the most lessons of all the books that I've read of uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. I think it's—I think they're all great, but the Silver Chair is so helpful. And one of the things that happens in there, I even forget who the—the—is the, it Lucy in that one? Is it still Lucy and Eustace? I should say is useless. It's Lucy. I think it's Lucy and Eustace. Anyway, whoever, whatever the two kids in this story are, Aslan, the character representing Christ, tells the girl these three signs and says, remember these signs. You're going to need these for your quest, for the journey that I'm sending you on. Don't forget the signs. And the whole success of their journey of their mission depends on her remembering what the lion tells her. And through the course of the adventure, and all the, I'm tired and cold, and we want to go in to where it's warm, and the giants are inviting us into their, their castle to be warmed and, and to be fed and fattened up so that they could eat us at their banquet, it turns out. And, and, and she forgets the signs, and they miss important parts of the journey because she forgot. And it's a great illustration of, of what we're talking about here. You know who had the words, the, uh, the, the instruction of dad and the, the law of mom? You know who had that bound on their hearts and tied down like around their neck, you know who, who did, did that was Daniel and his three friends, Hanani, Azariah, and Mishael. We call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because we follow the the pagan practices of the of Nebuchadnezzar, renaming the boys after the, the the pagan gods. But um, but these four four Hebrew boys in Daniel one remembered whether it was one of them reminding them or all three kind of agreed. They stood apart from the other people around them. Because they remembered what they'd been taught. We have no indication that they're reading Torah scrolls as they're making Torah decisions. They had received the instruction of their parents. And we don't know how old they were either, but we know that they were brought in as the cream of the crop of Israel's aristocracy. They were brought in to uh, the college, the training ground, the school of the magicians, of the wise men in Babylon. And uh, they, were, they were deluded. They, I'm sorry, they were deluged. They were, they were blasted with all the false doctrines of pagan learning and mystical reasoning. All the false, falsity that you could throw at them in the alternative worldviews of the pagans. And they still remembered the Torah of their mother. They still remembered what they had been taught. And they were making decisions based on that doctrine, based on that teaching under great pressure imagine the pressure they're in they've lost their families their, their their country's been vanquished they've been taken captive and basically enslaved the a lot of the scholars think that to be brought into this schoolhouse is to become become a, a eunuch a lot of people think that that's what happened to Daniel and his friends because of their the nature of their um, the, the Bible doesn't say that I don't hold that view but but I I don't know but the point is that they're brought into this horrible circumstance. They're, they've lost everything, and now they're being wined and dined. There's new pressure. They're being given the greatest food from the king's table, all the heavy, the heavy good food that's going to make them strong and make them able to, 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 to rise up in their studies and be the great wise men uh, under Nebuchadnezzar. So that's, that's a different direction of pressure, and that's the point of Daniel 1. They say no to that pressure. No, that's not for us. That's sacrifice to idols. We're only supposed to worship Yahweh. And so to us, that's the file. Could you please give us vegetables? And they, and they thrive, and God miraculously makes them thrive. Because of that. And I believe it's a miracle what happens with the boys and their health. But then but then, you have the even greater pressure. Bow down. All you have to do is bow down a little bit to this, this image, and you'll, you'll, you'll be saved. You won't have to go in the fiery furnace. And they say, we'd rather go to the fiery furnace than bow down to that image. We prefer death to defiling ourselves before our God. They had these things so inculcated in them that no matter what was thrown at them, prosperity, adversity, and false teaching, a lot of it, we're not going to bow down to that. It's amazing. And because it's a great testimony to this, and, and it gives us confidence that your children can have this happen for them. They can bind these things about their neck, they can tie uh, around their heart all the time. They can tie them around their neck. When you walk about, she will lead you. Your Bible might have a, have a note, mine does, that it says when you walk about, they will lead you, but then they put a footnote, or a little footnote that says she will lead you literally. And that's an interesting thing, and I have an exegetical reason. I think it says, uh, second, uh, third person, feminine, singular, she will lead you. Naha to lead. Don't see that word in the text all the time. It's not a real common word. When you walk, so you've got these things bound about your neck. When you walk about, when you go through life, the hip pile version, a form of the the verb to go or to walk, walk around, she will lead you. Who is she? It's the consequence of them being bound on the heart and neck. And them, these things are the commandment and the instruction. And the outcome has to be one thing, she. And it's Proverbs. This is the the skill of living your life before God. As a consequence of this instruction, it's wisdom. It is absolutely wisdom. When you walk about, she will lead you. She will lead you. And that's what you see in Daniel chapters 1 and 3. When you lie down, she'll watch over you. When you wake up, she'll preach to you. Mom and dad, what is Solomon doing by saying, listen to the instruction, hold on to it, bind it. And then he says, when you walk around, she'll lead you. When you lie down, she'll watch. What is he doing for their motivation in verse 22? What is Solomon providing? As a, he's motivating them to do what he's saying, to listen, to observe, to bind, to tie, to hang on to these things because of the outcome We are righteously motivated by thinking about consequences to our actions. And there's a promise from mom and dad and really from God the Father through the prophetic work of Solomon's writing here. We have a promise from God about the benefit of his wisdom in our hearts. This wisdom is very desirable because of the salutary consequences you you have from getting it. Who is the crown prince that received this instruction? Rehoboam. Solomon's son. He did not hold on to the things that he was taught. We don't know much about his life, but we know how he failed and how he lost the kingdom. Because he didn't listen to the elders, and he listened to the friends that were sinners that enticed him. And he misused his volition. And so he lost his government. The king is always his decisions before God. That's... Divine Institution 1, and in the instance of a king, it becomes the civil government. Government is always the individual with God. This is the outcome of making this choice to hang on to God's word. In color, when you walk about, she, wisdom, will lead you. When you lie down, she'll watch over you. When you wake up, she will preach to you. This word preach is a rare word for speak, to speaking. It says talk to in most of the English translations. But uh, the scholars that have done a little dive on this think it means like a pleading, like a special, um, powerful appeal. And so I've translated it preach just to wake us up a little bit, to remind mind me, this word is not the typical word for it is to speak, Devar, or some other word that's common for speech. This is a, this is a making the case kind of thing. She's going to help with some helpful instruction and again, I think Daniel's, Daniel chapters 1 and 3 illustrate this beautifully. In your life, you're not just flapping about. You have wisdom, and she's helping you know which way to go. And your life, was, as you have uh, occasion to be vulnerable, she helps you with that vulnerability and gives you, offers protection. Wisdom will even start your day with the things of God, and you'll be in your right mind. And this is 3,000 years old and it's fresh and it's new every day. Well, we'll finish establishing the scale of values in verse 23. For a lamp, for a ner a lamp, is the mitzvah. And the Torah is a light. For a lamp is the commandment and the instruction, the Torah is a light. And the path, the derrick of life, are the corrections of, of training. A lamp is the commandment. Sounds like Psalm one nineteen, doesn't it? Thy word is a lamp to my feet. W- what's the benefit? Well, um, she watch over me. She um, helps. She leads me. Wisdom uh, does the good things in verse twenty two, and the summary is because of what it is. So you're training a child, understand this is equipping a child's volition, we're training a child to value God's Word and the application of God's Word because of what it is and what it will do for you. A lamp is the commandment and the instruction, the Torah, is a light. Now Solomon inverted the order in the first part of verse 23 because he's bringing focus on the thing that we're after, the commandment and the instruction which gives you the wisdom. These things are the way you move forward in life. What's the application or the implication if you don't have God's wisdom? That you're in the what? That you're in the dark. Psalm 1 and 2 are called the Great Wisdom Psalms, two of the Great Wisdom Psalms, two ways in life. It really is radically binary. It's God's way or anything else. And you're either in the light or dark. That's another way to talk about some things that are digital or binary. And the path, the Derek, the path or the way of life are the reprimands of training. These reprimands of training are the path of life. They come together to make this path that is how you live rather than die. In in Proverbs 1 with the capital punishment because you're a murderer or something else that is issues in an undesirable outcome because you're a fool. How do parents train their kids? They tell them what the value of the training is, and they do that by, if, as necessary, the motivation of consequence. This is going to give you a good outcome because of what it is. That's the reasoning that we get if we look at it closely. And maybe when you read through fast, you saw all that, but I didn't see it when I read fast. I have to slow it down. And especially it helps me to put things in their order so I can see how the poetry lines up. One of the great benefits I received growing up was a high value my parents placed on God's Word. And that has always been kind of a, of a A default position, fallback position. I haven't always lived a perfect life, um, but I've always known where the light is. And may our children, may all of our children, always, because of our example, because of our training, always know what the real value is, what the light is, what the benefit is. May they, as they negotiate the darkness, not do it blindly. Our Father, we thank you for your word and the challenge of the time in which we live. We thank you for the hardships as we make our urgent specific requests because we need the peace that surpasses all comprehension. So we ask on behalf of our kids that you would give us wisdom and the necessary character to train them as Solomon is describing. Father, don't let our boys and girls be like Rehoboam, who had that training and forsook it, rejected it, neglected it, and so fell by the wayside in horrible folly. Help them see the truth because they love you, because they trust you. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.